So if you've been with us at all this semester, you'll know that we've been going through the book of Isaiah. And as we've gone through, one of the primary themes is the idea of trust. Who are you going to trust? Is it going to be God or is it going to be something else or someone else? And throughout this book thus far, we've seen all of the ways in which God's people have struggled to trust in him. And really, tonight, as we're kind of at a hinge point in the book, heading towards the last major section of Isaiah, we're going to take a fresh look at what it means to trust in God. And so I actually think the best way for us to start tonight, as we think about trusting in God, is to think about the ways that he has shown himself to be trustworthy in our own lives. How have you seen the faithfulness of God in your own life? Where has he shown himself to be trustworthy in your own life? And, it, and these could be big things, may, maybe a big stories, or maybe they're just small ways that over time, as you look back, you've seen the faithfulness of God in your life over the years. He's never left you. He's never forsaken you. And so what I want us to do, because this will be important for us to look back upon as we go throughout this message, is I want to give you a slightly more extended time than normal. Instead of three or four minutes, I want to give you six or seven minutes at your table to share some ways in which God has been faithful in your life. And here's my only preface to this is if you're a storyteller and you're long-winded, you, you know, if you're like me, you know who you are, try to keep the story kind of brief because we want everyone at the table, if they feel comfortable, to share. Um, so let's have a moment, talk through ways you've seen God uh, shown himself trustworthy in your life, faithful in your life, and then we'll get a, a couple examples and then we will dive into our passage tonight. So talk to your tables for a little bit and then I'll come back up. So Luke is saying that whenever he's at his rock bottom, at his lowest, God is always there and he, he's calling out to him. Um, and doubtless, if we have more time, we could go around and hear story after story after story of God's faithfulness in our lives. And I'll tell you, if it took a little bit to get, you know, if you're a Christian and it took a little bit to think of some stories, I'd encourage you. Maybe one of the best things you could do is take some time, whether it's an afternoon or a day or maybe it's a Saturday morning or something. And, you know, I'm not a journaler, you know, so whatever it looks like, but some way to write down and track some of the ways God has been faithful. I can tell you for me, keeping track of my prayers has been a great habit for this because there's so many little prayers that I will pray and I'll forget about. And then three years later, I'll be like, oh my gosh, he just answered like 30 of those prayers. And here I am praying, wondering if he's even listening. He is, but we are just so inattentive sometimes, so I'd encourage you. It's a super faith-building experience to just see God's faithfulness over time and to track it. Well, tonight, we are going to get pictures of God's faithfulness, but also we're going to look at what does it mean to trust God. That's really kind of our main point. What does it mean to trust God? And we're just going to, kind of like a diamond, just turn it and see the different facets of what it looks like to trust God and what would be preventing us from trusting God. And we are going to be in Isaiah chapters 36 and 37. So if you have your scripture journals or your Bibles or Bible on your phone, turn or tap with me there. Isaiah chapter 36. We're going to start in verse 1. And let me give you a little context as we prepare to go through the passage. Real quick, we're, I mean, we're not going to read the whole thing um, verse by verse. We'll get a number of verses. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of narrate the story of this passage. This is kind of a unique passage because... For much of Isaiah, it's been more poetic. And you'll even be able to tell in the way it's indented in your Bible. Um, but this passage reads like a story. And so we're going to narrate it like that. And so we're, gonna, we're actually going to go through kind of the big picture of the whole story and then look at it from a few different angles of trusting God. So a little bit of context here. Last week, <clears throat> we talked about 
how God's people, um, people of Judah, see the Assyrian army, this major superpower that has just knocked out other nations right and left, have fiercely defeated other nations, is, is, is knocking on their door. And at that time, God's people did not trust in God for their own protection. They trusted in the nation of Egypt. And all of the ironies of that, because, you know, God had freed his people from Egypt many years before in miraculous fashion. Um, and yet the same people that enslaved God's people are the ones that they went back to in their moment of need rather than going to God. Um, you see just this incredible reality of Egypt being this weak and puny nation. They, they look big and strong on the outside, but actually internally they're weak. And uh, yet God's people are going to trust Egypt instead of God. And we, we walked through that and did the scripture activity. Well, much of that happened in part under the reign of King Ahaz. Um, and Ahaz has come up a number of times, and we, we see Ahaz is not always trusting in God, and this would be an example. But Ahaz's son, Hezekiah, is now on the throne. And Hezekiah takes a, a different approach in some things. Um, Hezekiah is seeking to be faithful to God. Um, one of the things Hezekiah does when he takes the throne, you can read this in uh, 2 Chronicles 29-31, you can see this, elements of this in 2 Kings 18, is when Hezekiah takes the throne, he wants to reform worship in the nation of Judah. And so he tells the priests, take out all the other idols. You know, they would started to mix in all these pagan religions in their worship. And he says, throw out all the other idols, we only want to worship God alone. And so he's trying to reform the worship. He's trying to bring people back to God and do the right thing. And uh, with, with King Hezekiah on the throne, we see that finally the nation of Assyria is here. It's not just like this looming threat, you know, like watching a storm coming in. It's like, no, no, the rain's starting to fall. They are here. And that's kind of the context that we have walking into our passage. So let's start. Isaiah chapter 36. I'm going to read some verses. I'm going to narrate some, and we're going to walk through this story. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, King Sennacherib of Assyria attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his royal spokesman, along with a massive army from Lachish, to King Hezekiah in Jerusalem. The Assyrians stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. And then, you'll see, King Hezekiah has his royal spokesman meet the royal spokesman of Assyria. So you have this meeting in this very specific place, the royal spokesman of Assyria, and then you have kind of the royal representatives of King Hezekiah. And this is what the royal spokesman from Assyria has to say. Tell Hezekiah, the great king, the king of Assyria says this, what are you relying on? You think mere words are strategy and strength for war. Who are you now relying on that you have rebelled against me? Look, you're relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff that will pierce the hand of anyone who grabs it and leans on it. This is how Pharaoh, king of Egypt, is to all who rely on him. And suppose you say to me, we rely on the Lord our God. Isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you are to worship at this altar? And then he goes on to say this. Now make a deal with my master, the king of Assyria. 
I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to supply the riders for them. How can you then drive back a single officer among the least of my master's servants? Quick pause. Might be saying, what is he saying about the 2,000 horses? His, his phrase in that is the equivalent of saying, I'll give you a head start in the race and I'm still going to beat you. He's like saying, I'm going to give you 2,000 horses you can use and you still won't beat my army. That's what he's saying. He's talking trash. How can you rely on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Have I attacked this land to destroy it without the Lord's approval? The Lord said to me, attack this land and destroy it. So he finishes this initial speech. I mean, he is just straight up talking trash to Hezekiah's representatives. I mean, this representative of the, of the king of Assyria, he is arrogant, he is cocky, and he thinks no one in the world can take down the nation of Assyria. And he's talking trash so loudly, so aggressively, that if you were to look through the next few verses, what you find is the representatives of Judah, they actually say in verse 11, please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. He's saying, please speak to us in kind of the diplomatic language, a language that our people won't understand. He said, don't speak to us in Hebrew with an earshot of the people who are on the wall. So it's like this representative, this royal representative of the nation of Assyria is talking trash so loudly, so aggressively, that the representatives of Judah are like, we don't want you to freak our people out, and so would you talk in another language that they can understand? That's what they're saying. But notice what the royal spokesman of Assyria does. Verse 12. But the royal spokesman replied, Has my master sent me to speak these words to your master and to you, and not to the men who are sitting on the wall, who are destined with you to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Think about that. So not only is he not abiding by their wish, he makes the trash talk even more disgusting. And he literally says, we will beat you so soundly in battle. We will dominate you so soundly. You all will eat your own excrement and drink your own urine. I mean, I, I'm not much of a trash talker. That's not my personality. That's pretty intense. That's pretty intense. And imagine if you were a bystander watching this happen. And you already know you're this tiny nation of Judah. You know Assyria's coming and you think, oh my gosh, what is the future that's coming? But he, he has even more unction. And the royal spokesman then, it's like he steps aside from the, the representatives of Judah just so everyone can hear. And at the top of his lungs, in Hebrew, in the language all the pedestrians can understand, he says this. Listen to the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Don't let Hezekiah deceive you, for he cannot rescue you. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to rely on the Lord, saying, The Lord will certainly rescue us. This city will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Don't listen to Hezekiah, for this is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and surrender to me. Then every one of you may eat from his own vine and his own fig tree and water from his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you by saying, The Lord will rescue us. Has any one of the gods of the nations rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? He just ratched up, ratcheted everything up even more. He's attacking the very religion. 
Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Seraphim? Have they rescued Samaria from my power? Who among all the gods of these lands ever rescued his land from my power? So will the Lord actually rescue Jerusalem from my power? That's a pretty intense speech. He's attacked their dignity, he's attacked their king, and he's attacked their God. And this royal spokesman, speaking on behalf of the king of Assyria, believes that no one can actually defeat Assyria. And so what happens? These royal representatives of Judah, they don't answer him, they're left speechless, and they go back to Hezekiah. And they, they're, they're nervous and they're mourning. I mean, you can tell, it says they tear their clothes. And so then after they report this to Hezekiah, what happens? Hezekiah hears the report. He is distressed. He tears his clothes in mourning. He's covered himself with sackcloth and ashes. And he goes to the Lord's temple. And he sends his representatives in charge of the palace. And he says, I want you to go talk to Isaiah. So Hezekiah is like, this is a big deal. There is major fate upon us. I need you to go talk to Isaiah. Isaiah um, <clears throat> listens to what they have to say. And they, they say, this is what Hezekiah says. Today is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. It's as if the children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. Perhaps the Lord God will hear all your words. Um, so, and notice the word it used. All the words of the royal Spokesman, verse 4 of chapter 37. So what are they doing? It's like they're going to the royal spokesman of the Lord, saying, okay, will the true king of all listen to our prayers? We're being sent on behalf of our king because we want to talk to the one great king. And so Isaiah listens and as they're, as they're listening, as he's listening, he finally says to them in verse 6, Tell your master the Lord says this. Don't be afraid because of the words you have heard, with which the king of Assyria's attendants have blasphemed me. I'm about to put a spirit in him, and he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, where I will cause him to fall by the sword. Pretty intense, but he's saying just trust God. God has got this. And so they bring this back to Hezekiah. And then notice what happens in 37. You got starting in verse 8. The royal spokesman hears that the king of Assyria is pulled out of Lachish, one of the nearby places, and he's found him fighting in another place. And then this royal spokesman of the king of Assyria ends up leaving a letter with uh, Hezekiah's representatives. Just, just to say, this is what's about to happen. We are going to overtake you. And so Hezekiah takes this letter, this threat of a letter. And what does he do? Chapter 37, verse 14 says, Hezekiah takes this letter from the messenger's hands, reads it, and then he goes up to the Lord's temple and spreads it out before the Lord. And then Hezekiah prays. And after Hezekiah prays, God answers through Isaiah. 
So that's a summary of what's happening here. You've got the spokesman of the king of Assyria. He's leaving all these threats with God's people. And God's people, again, are forced with the opportunity to say, are we going to trust in human powers or something else? Or are we going to trust in God? That's really what's at stake here. And we're watching Hezekiah wrestle with this. And then we watch Hezekiah say, you know what? I'm going to trust in God. And I'm going to rely on his faithfulness because he's shown himself to be trustworthy. And it's the story of God's people wrestling with trusting in him through really hard times. And yet they have a different response than some of their forefathers. They're saying, no, we're going to try to trust. And what I want us to do tonight is I want to take some time to think about what does it mean to trust God? Um, what, what does it look like to trust God? What are the things that are keeping me from trusting God? When was the last time I consciously stepped out in faith and trusted God in something? And what might God be calling me to at this moment to trust him in? That's really the angles we're going to look at through this story. And one of the first things I want us to notice from this story is we think about what it means to trust in God is that sometimes when we come to these situations where a major life thing happens and we are forced to say, I've got to trust in God because I can't do this on my own, we have to deal with the false gods in our life and the split allegiances. You'll remember that I said that Hezekiah, when he took over as king, he had the priest clear out the temple of all the false idols. So you'll remember God's people weren't faithfully trusting in the Lord for a long time when Assyria was a looming threat. And part of the reason was because they started worshiping the gods of all the other surrounding nations. And so if you had gone into their temple, you would see idols from all these different religions rather than being a temple consecrated for the one true God. And so Hezekiah is saying, we got to clear out the temple. We got to make this about God alone. We can't trust in other things, other false gods for our protection. And notice, the royal spokesman picks up on this. Isaiah 36, 18 and 20, he says, Beware that Hezekiah does not mislead you by saying, The Lord will rescue us. Has any one of the gods of the nations rescued his land from the power of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of these different places? And he goes on to say, So will the Lord rescue Jerusalem from my power. And earlier, he even points out, you know, Hezekiah is doing things in the temple. And you can tell that probably the, the king of Assyria has a spy in Judah's midst because he knows some facts, but they don't quite all match up with the truth. Um, but the king of Assyria is trying to prey on the people's split allegiances. He knows Hezekiah is trying to bring religious reform so that they're only focusing on God. And yet, what is he doing? The king of Assyria is saying, I bet not everyone is ready to trust in God alone. And so they're trying to hedge their bets with all these other gods. For us, this is where we have to consider, where do we have split allegiances? If someone were to look in the temple of your own heart, you know, we, we know from Corinthians, it talks about the body is a temple. And we, we joke about that, and there's memes about that. But in a real sense, if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in your heart. And yet, as Christians, sometimes we can be drawn to trust in things other than God, idols, sins, false gods in our world. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are the false gods that are competing for our allegiance? So that when you come to 
a, a time where you're forced to trust in God. There's a tough decision in your life. There's a tough situation put before you. What are those other idols and things that are competing for your allegiance? We have to be like Hezekiah and say, I'm going to clear all these false idols out of the temple of my life so that I am trusting in God and God alone. And what some of you have probably experienced and may be experiencing now is Satan acting like the royal ambassador for the king of Assyria and saying things like this. Look at all these other things and idols that you put your trust in alongside God. Do you actually trust the Lord? None of your other idols or gods have helped you, so why would God be able to help you? To which you have to respond like Hezekiah and say, I know I've struggled to trust God in the past, but I'm clearing away all my other idols so I can fully trust him today. So when you come to a moment where you are being forced to trust in God, you can't do something on your own, whether it's a moment of temptation or a big decision in your life or whatever it is, you have to ask yourself, am I actually truly and fully trusting in God? Or am I like the people of Judah where my allegiances are split? Yeah, I trust God some. I'm a, I call myself a Christian. I go to worship. I read my Bible. I feel good. But actually, if I'm totally honest, I'm trusting in my own self. or I'm trusting in someone else or something else to help me in this moment. Or is God at the center of the temple of your life? So here's what I want us to do. I want us to think about that for a second at our tables. And so here's the question I want you to talk about for just a few minutes. What gods of the world are competing for your trust? What idols or sins are competing for your trust? What lies are they telling you about their promises? And what lies are they telling you about God? Because notice the royal spokesman says, oh, hey, if you, if you follow me, I'll, I'll take you to a good land and a good place. If you pause for a moment and think about it, he didn't say, oh yeah, by the way, the last nation we conquered, we flayed their people alive. He's telling them a lie because he wants them to trust. What lies are the gods in your world telling you? And what lies are they saying about your one true God? Talk about that for just a few minutes at your tables and then we will continue on. One of the things that'll be important for you to do as you think about how do I trust God is what are the things that are competing for your trust? Because there are things, all of us have things that compete for our trust. What, what are those things? What are we drawn to trust in? The next thing I want us to look at is elements of trusting God in the past or opportunities where we've been able to be tested on whether or not we trust God in the past. What I want us to do is I want us to notice that you know, this is the beauty of Bible study. It's rich. There is so much there to be taken in every time. A detail I had never noticed before. But look with me at verse uh, Isaiah 36, verse 2. It says, Then the king of Assyria sent his royal spokesman along with a massive army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. And then catch this. The Assyrian stood near the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Now, you probably glossed over that and didn't think anything of it. And I have every other time I've read this passage in my life, which is several times. And then it, it hit me after reading a commentary and, and just doing some things. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Again, the details 
matter in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 7. You've got another opportunity here where God's people under Ahaz are faced with the situation. Are they going to trust God? And catch this, starting in verse 3, Isaiah 7, verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out with your son, and I can never pronounce his name, so I'm not even going to try, to meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Exact same place where the royal representative of Assyria met Hezekiah's people. Exact same place, but many years before. And this time, Hezekiah's father is the one in control. Now look with me at verses 10 to 13. Same part of the story, same story, same place. Isaiah 7, 10 to 13. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. And then catch this. Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. And Isaiah says, Listen, house of David. Listen, you king of Judah. Is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? What is he saying? He's like, dude, you are in a situation where you cannot conquer on your own. You have to trust in God. God is giving you an opportunity to make a request to go to him, and you won't even do it. So not only are you ticking me off as a prophet, as a man, you're ticking God off. You won't trust in him. Think about that. Same situation as Hezekiah. He's got, he, he's got his whole nation in peril. And Ahaz refuses to put his trust in God, in God alone. And then catch this. You know, sometimes, especially on the holidays, we all probably know like random single verses from the Old Testament, and we never think about where they come from. Well, there's a Christmas verse that you have probably heard a hundred times if you've ever grown up in the church. Catch this uh, here in verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. If you want to ask for it, I'm going to give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. Now think about that. God is saying, you know what? If you're not going to trust me, I'm still going to give you a sign. I'm not just going to give you a sign. I'm going to give a sign for all the peoples of all time that I am God and I am the king overall and I am trustworthy. And God is with Ahaz in his unfaithfulness. And then again, if you were to go back to our passage in Isaiah chapter 36 and 37, he's with Hezekiah as Hezekiah is trying to be faithful. And you could read through God's response to Hezekiah. Remember, Emmanuel means God with us. And the Lord is saying, I am going to be with you in this. Now, I want us to think about what this means for for us as we trust in God and seek to trust in him. The king is the representative of God's people. And so previously, the kings had been unfaithful, and yet God's people are trying to be faithful now. And what I would remind you is that your 
past unfaithfulness does not have to define your current faith. Let me say that again. Your past unfaithfulness does not have to define your current faith. We have all proved ourselves unfaithful to God in some way in the past. We have trusted in false gods. We have trusted in other things. We've given into temptations to sin time and time and time and time again. And yet God says, I will still be with you. And I think one of the most beautiful things that God does is sometimes, in order to press the point, sometimes in order to give us another shot to trust in him, to remind us of his faithfulness, he will take us back to the same spot, the same temptation, the same thing, and say, okay, another chance. Are you going to trust in me? And for some of you, that might hit extra close to home because maybe for you it's a struggle with pornography. And so that same spot is the same website, the same time of week when your roommates aren't around and it's late at night and no one knows what you're doing. Or, or maybe for you, it, it, it's a struggle of putting all of your satisfaction in food. And so it's the same kind of exhaustion, the same time of the week, all these things going on, or, or, or whatever the, the sin is or the struggle is, it's coming back to the same place where you've been unfaithful and God's saying, I'm giving you another shot. Are you going to trust in me this time? And I can tell you that hits home for me in a really particular way because this is a picture of my calling into the ministry. I, I remember being a junior in high school. Public speaking was my biggest fear in the world. And I remember being at Summerfest. You, some of you guys have heard this story a hundred times. I remember being at Summerfest. It's like halfway through the week. It's like midnight. I'm supposed to be in my cabin, and yet I'm in the, the worship center area of the camp and I'm just wrestling with God and praying through some things. And Pastor Brad Daniel, the youth pastor at the time, one of my mentors, sits down next to me, and instead of getting on me, um, like he probably should have, and sending me back to my room, he, he talks to me for a little bit. You know, first he's like five chairs over, and then he scoots over, and he's like three chairs over, and then he's right next to me. And as we start to talk, he says, Caleb, I think you're called to the ministry. And I remember I literally laughed out loud at him. And I told him, no, I'm going to do civil engineering at Mizzou, which I didn't even do. I, well, I did for half a semester or something, and I switched to architecture. I ran the opposite direction from a, a call God had placed on my life because I was afraid. Public speaking was my biggest fear in the whole world. I just I could not fathom that that's what God would actually call me into. And so I pulled a Jonah, and I ran the other way. Four or five years later, same literal room, almost the exact same spot in the room, about the same point at camp in the week, except this time instead of being a student, I'm a camp leader. I'm sitting there, it's midnight. This time I wouldn't be in trouble for being out of my room because I got the authority to do it. But Brad Daniel comes in, it's like midnight, halfway through the week, five chairs over, and he scoots the three chairs over, then right next to me. And he says, Caleb, I think you were called to the ministry. And I remember breaking down and like sobbing, like the ugly cry, because I had just felt this pursuit from the Lord for years. And finally it was like, yeah, you're right. And for just reading this passage, I mean, it was just bringing back these sweet memories. I was texting Brad earlier and just thanking him for being this faithful witness to God um, for so many years of my life in that. It was, I mean, literally it was God was saying, okay, you were unfaithful. But I'm gonna give you same spot, same place, same person, are you going to trust me this time? For you, what is that? 
Is it that same website? Is it the same question about a job? Is it, you know you need to get out of that relationship and you've thought about it and you've almost done it and you didn't send the, you didn't send the text or have the conversation or make the phone call or do whatever. When the opportunity comes up again, are you gonna be faithful? Are you gonna trust in God? Sometimes what God does is he takes us back to the places where we've been unfaithful so he can show us his faithfulness and so we can have an opportunity to trust him again. We see this with Peter, where Peter denies Jesus, and you'll notice, again, it's the details, there's the charcoal fire in the background, and then what happens, Jesus comes along later, and he's going to Peter, and in his restoration, the Bible makes note of that charcoal fire. Similar place, similar situation, Peter, you're gonna be faithful to me. God does this to us all of the time. So as we wrestle with stepping out in faith to God, what are, the, what are the places God keeps on bringing up where, where we have opportunities to trust him? Are we gonna trust him? And what are, the, what are the times and places where we've actually trusted him in the past? I would imagine for us, if, we're, if many of us have been Christians for very long, we have stepped out in faith to trust him at different points. And so that's actually what I want you to talk about for, and this is gonna be real quick, for about three minutes, just real briefly, um, what was a time where in the past where you have stepped out in faith to consciously trust God? When was the last time you did it? What, what did you do? Was it having a conversation with the friend you know you needed to for restoration? Was it saying yes to the mission trip? Was it saying yes to the serving opportunity? Was it stepping out of your job or stepping into a new one? Or what was, what was it? When was the last time you stepped out in faith to consciously trust God in some way? And what did you do? Talk about that real briefly at your tables and then we will continue on. Uh, I know that's not nearly enough time. I feel like you, probably only one person got to share, but for the sake of time, we're gonna move on to our kind of final setup for questions. So we've talked about what things, what false gods are competing for our trust. You know, what are the things that are getting in the way of us trusting God? We have talked about um, times we have trusted God in the past. And we've talked about, you know, different ways that God has been faithful and ways that we've been encouraged to trust in the past and that we have stepped out in faith in the past. But now, I want us to end by talking about how can we trust God now and in the future? And I think one of the most significant things for us to consider in this is that yesterday's faith is a good thing. Praise God for the ways we have trusted him, but yesterday's faith is not enough for today. Yesterday's faith was enough for yesterday. It takes a fresh act of faith today. And I fear that some of us have grown up in the church. We, we made a profession for Jesus early. Maybe we wanted some mission trips. We got really excited. We served for a while. But if we're honest, we're coasting. And we are just riding on the coattails of that act of faith from 10 years ago, five years ago, two years ago. And if we're honest, we are not taking active and fresh steps of faith today. So I want us to think about why that is, and I want to encourage you to take a fresh step of faith today, whatever it is. And I just want to be clear, this step of faith does not have to be some world-changing thing like, oh, I'm moving to the, the other side of the globe right now. It may be like the smallest little step, but the small step is still a step. It may be, I'm going to read my Bible for the first time ever consistently. That might mean I'm reading one chapter a day, one verse a day. I'm going to pray one time a day for the first time consistently ever. These don't have to be huge things. They could be. They don't have to be. 
And so as you think about what are the areas, what, what is the way right now that God is pressing you to take a step of faith? What is the, the opportunity where that royal spokesman's coming up and your faith is being tested to trust in God or trust in something else? What is that situation? Is it a conversation with a coworker? Is it a change in job? Is it a relationship? Is it having a restorative conversation? Is it uh, having a conversation with a family member? Whatever it is, serving for the first time, reading your Bible for the first time. What is that step that God is pressing you to? And I want you to picture that step, that, that terrifying thing that God has put before you to test your faith and to have you trust in him. I want you to picture that like Hezekiah's letter from the king of Assyria's representative. You remember that, that in chapter 37, he has that letter from the, the king of Assyria's representative, and what does he do with it? This letter, which represents all of this fear, all of this opportunity, all of this chance to trust in God, and what does he do? He takes it to the temple. Verses uh, 14 to 20 of, of chapter 37. Hezekiah took the letter from the messenger's hands and read it, and then went up to the Lord's temple and spread it out before the Lord. Then Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. My first question would be, whatever would be in the letter of your life at this moment, what is that thing that has been put before you that is a major test of your faith? Where the opportunities come up and say, are you going to trust in God or are you going to trust in something else? Whatever it is, what are you doing with that letter? Are you just stuff it in your pocket? Are you burning it? Are you just reading it over and over and just being anxious? Are you going to something else to self-medicate, to take care of the anxiety? Or are you taking it before the Lord and offering up to him and say, God, I can't do this on, your own and I, on my own and I trust you to help me. And if you would do that, Hezekiah sets an amazing example for what our prayer should look like. Look with me in that passage again. Hezekiah prays, Lord of armies, God of Israel, enthroned be between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, all of the kingdoms of the earth. You made the heavens and the earth. Listen closely, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Hear all the words that Sennacherib has sent to mock the living God. Lord, it is true that the king of Assyria has devastated all of these countries and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but made from wood and stone by human hands. So they have destroyed them. Now, Lord our God, save us from his power, so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are God, you alone. One of the best ways when you are faced with an opportunity to trust God that is freaking you out is in your prayer life. Do you actually start with God? Because notice, he starts with the greatness of God as this reminder for him that actually, God, you are greater than whatever has been put in front of me. You are greater than Satan or whatever other false God I am tempted to trust in at this moment. Do you actually start with God or is it just the simplest request for your own gain? Because you'll notice, not only does he start with God, his intent of the prayer, his intent of trusting with God is not just to save his own skin, it's so that God would get all the glory. He says, now, Lord, our God, save us from his power so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, our God, you alone. What would it look like for you to take whatever's in that letter in your life right now, whatever opportunity God has put before you to trust him and to go to him in prayer? And maybe that's an activity you do this weekend. 
Is what, what is on that letter? What is that thing that you put before me, God? It's terrifying me. And then to say, God, I need to pray through this. I want to bring this to you. We are all, whether at this moment or in the coming days, going to be faced with opportunities about where our, our faith is going to be tested. Are we actually going to trust in God? Are we going to have split allegiances? Are we going to trust in something else? Yesterday's faith and trust was for yesterday. We need fresh faith today. And every new step of faith requires an act of new trust in God. And we can rest in God's faithfulness. We know that he's with us. We can know it intellectually, but are we actually going to trust in him in a new act of faith? I watched Jay and Jane do this. I mean, we just celebrated Jay's announcement. And if, if you sometime could sit down with him and hear all of the wrestling they did together with God about, is this the right time? Is this the right situation? I learned so much about what it means to trust in God watching them and just praying alongside of them. And I watched them, like Hezekiah, take this to God and say, God, we want you to get the glory. This is a terrifying situation. What, what do we do? Do we make this decision? And they were perfect exemplars of this. It was hard, but that's what makes this trust in God in this new season so worth it. And I've watched them step after step after step, trusting God in a new act of faith in each season. And this is their next way to do that. What's it going to be for you? What is that fresh act of faith? What is that next step that God is calling you to? And what I would say is, if you're a little bit confused by that and you're just saying, well, next steps, why? You know, I'm just here to sing praise and I'm, you know, I, wanna, I want encouragement, but next steps, why do I need to take next steps? I would just tell you, if you're not here to take next steps, what are you even doing here? You're wasting your time. The Christian faith is not about just this one-time decision and then we just get to kind of add heaven to all the things we were already going to do in this life. The Christian faith is radical sacrifice for Jesus because he's worth it. Because what we receive is a picture of God's faithfulness that lasts for all of eternity. If your Christian faith is just adding worldly promises to your life and you just add heaven at the end, you're not really trusting in God like you should. You have a split allegiance and you are trusting in all these false idols to give you security and satisfaction and joy. We have to take fresh acts of faith, fresh steps of faith each and every day. And I can just tell you, and Nick and Jay and Kelly and Jane, all, all of them would affirm, one of the ways we could do that as a community, especially if you're here at PV, is, is you know that there is a big hole that 20-somethings is trying to fill. There's lots of folks in their families with students raising up with kids, and there's lots of young marrieds with kids and so on, but there is this massive gap in the middle, and 20-somethings has done a great job to start to fill it, but PV needs you all, or whatever church you go to needs your voice to step up and to lead for the sake of God's kingdom. We're not just here to sit back and wait till we're 50 and then suddenly we're qualified. You serve now. God calls you now, whether that's holding babies in the nursery, whether that's serving a youth group, whether that's being on the security team, whether that is in the tech booth, whether that's leading a small group, whatever it looks like, what is a fresh step in your faith that you can do not only to serve in the church, but in your own life as well? Again, if you're not taking fresh steps of faith, then what are you doing? You're wasting your time. We're not just here for a spiritual pat on the back. And you will never get anywhere without taking fresh steps of faith. 
The church needs us to step up. If we have more time, I would have you all at your tables talk through what is that act of faith? What is that next step that God is going to have you take? But I want you just to be thinking about that, praying about it. If one does not come to mind, God will give it to you, I promise. But I want to end by assuring you that whatever fresh step of faith God is calling you to, he will provide and he will show up. But it may not look like what you're expecting. Look with me at Isaiah chapter 37, verses 36 to 30, at the very end of our passage. Remember, Hezekiah has been stepping out in faith and saying, God, I need you to step up. We cannot defeat Assyria on our own. It is only by your power that we can do this. Will you listen, Lord? Will you do this for your name's sake? I'm going to take a fresh step of faith in this. And God says, hey, I'm going to step up. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to provide. Watch me. And here we see it, starting in verse 36. Then the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. When the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. And so King Sennacherib of Assyria broke camp and left, and he returned home and lived in Nineveh. Quick pause. You would assume from reading Hezekiah's prayer that maybe the people of Judah would meet them in battle and by some miraculous way, kind of like a 300 situation, you know, they, they would conquer in battle. Doesn't, God doesn't do that. He says, I'm making sure that I'm going to get all the glory and I'm going to answer Hezekiah's prayer precisely. Because remember, Hezekiah prayed for God's glory. What does he do? He sends out an angel and strikes down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. That, that is God's power on display. But then it gets even better. Last verse here. One day, while he, this is King Sennacherib, king of Assyria. One day while he was worshiping in the temple of his God, his sons struck him down with the sword and escaped to the land of Ariat. And then his son became king in his place. Context is key here. This happens in 681 BC, which is about 20 years after Hezekiah's initial prayers to God. So this is not like God answered this the next day. But think about it. Not only does God defeat the Assyrians with the angel and just massive displays of his glory, our God has a sense of humor. This king that was talking all this trash saying, your God can't do anything. He's not stronger than me. And you're, you know, all the things you do in worship, they're, they're not worth it. What happens? This king that was talking trash is worshiping in his temple to his false god, and God has his own sons strike him down. In the place where he thought he was most secure was the place he was most in danger. God found a way and used that man's sons to slay him, and that man's false gods did nothing. They sat there dead and lifeless because they are not alive. God answers our prayers not in our own time, not in our own way, but no matter what your step of faith will, will be, he will be faithful. And if you would keep track of it, you would, you, would, you would document the ways you've watched God show up, you'd be able to look back one day and watch some equivalent in your life of the 185,000, of the king being slain, and see that God has shown up in ways you could never possibly imagine. And if you're skeptical, 
God showed up in the most unthinkable way and answered the most unthinkable prayers at the cross. These are the ultimate expression of the unexpected answers to God's uh, prayers. He defeated the greatest enemy, sin and death, through the death of Jesus to atone for all sin. And when Satan thought he had the victory over Jesus, putting him to death, it was the very way in which Jesus would actually defeat Satan in the first place. God will always be faithful in whatever step of faith God has for you. He will provide. What is going to be your step of faith? For some of you, your step of faith was actually coming here because you're not Christians. You're checking this whole thing out. And praise God for the step of faith you took to walk into this room and, and brave the, the terrible weather. But I can tell you, God has another step of faith for you. And his step of faith is that you would trust in the prayer-answering, powerful God, King of kings, Lord of lords, that gave his only son to die for your sin. That is your next step of faith. And if that's you, there is nothing more that we would love to do than to pray with you and talk with you more about that. But whatever your step of faith is, may we encourage one another and trust in God, and we would be amazed to see what he would do. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you answer our prayers. We thank you that you are trustworthy. And God, we thank you that even though you don't need our help, you call us to serve alongside you. You call us to step out in faith that we might see your power, your might, and your glory for the whole world to notice. And God, I pray for my friends here tonight that you would give them that moment of that, that opportunity of faith, that fresh step that you have before them, and God, would you help them to trust in you? Maybe that means going back to that same place where they have been unfaithful time and time and time again, get, given into that sin, been unfaithful and not followed your call. Whatever it is, God, would you take them back there again and say, are you going to trust me this time? I'm faithful. I'm Emmanuel. I'm God with you. God, would you help us take next steps of faith together as a ministry and would, do, would you do things beyond our wildest dreams for your name's sake? Pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.